So we have spent some time in Ephesians chapter 1, and we discovered that there's a lot going on inside of that chapter. There's a lot of beautiful and soaring language. Paul layers big idea on top of big idea. And so we got to deal with some of the fundamental truths of the Christian faith and see what this is all about and try to make sense of some of these big ideas. During this week, I heard someone describe the book of Ephesians as the Grand Canyon of Paul's epistles. And I like that thought, because if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, there's, there's sort of one moment of frustration when you realize, no matter where I stand, I will never see this whole thing. I'm going to have to spend a lot of time in this to, to get this thing figured out. And the book of Ephesians is like that. So we've dealt with these big ideas, hopefully in some pretty productive ways. As we turn into Ephesians chapter 2, however, Paul begins to get rather specific. And at the beginning of our passage today, he gets specific with sinners and with God. So what happens is we begin to learn how God takes sinners and makes them his children. How God takes us from one way of life, injects his mercy and grace into us, and turns it into a brand new way of life. Now, we're going to use the word sin a lot this morning. So if you don't like that term, that's too bad. We lock the doors. You're in here for the next 40 minutes. It's too bad. We're going to talk about sin a lot because Paul talks about sin a lot. Now, in our culture, we don't like dealing with that term. It doesn't show up often in our normal discourse, in conversation, in media. People don't like the word, but that tends to be a knee-jerk response to what they kind of remember as sort of the religious context uh, the guilt of the term sin and all that that means. So a lot of people will tell you they don't like that idea for one reason or another. Let me tell you something about sin. Everybody believes in sin. Everybody does. As a general term, that just simply means that people do bad things. People are in some ways at least bad. People do things that cause bad consequences. All of us believe in sin. Now, what happens is we tend to sort of domesticate the notion of sin. We pull it into ourselves. We get rid of God, and we become the way, the way in which we redefine what is right and wrong. So this is proper behavior, improper behavior, right behavior, wrong behavior. And because we're no longer talking about God in sin, we're talking about what I think is good and bad. I become the morality maker in the world around me. And that turns out to be a house of cards. It falls down constantly. But humanity loves that idea, so we come back to it over and over and over again. The problem with sin is that the only way to understand sin, the only way to deal with sin is in the context of God and who He is. If we get rid of the idea and the notion and the presence and the work of God, sin becomes an unconquerable problem in our lives. So we have to bring God back into this context. And if we're talking about sin and we're talking about God, what does God do with sinners? What does God do with sinners? In our passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to essentially hit on two big ideas. First of all, we are dead in our sins. So what is it that sin does to the human heart? 
the human mind, our, our lives, our thoughts, our actions. What does sin do? What are those kinds of consequences inside of our lives? And Paul just simply says, we are dead in our sins. The second half of our passage this morning says, however, that God is rich in mercy. We're dead in our sins, but God is rich in mercy. That's what changes everything, is the richness of the mercy of God and how that works. God has far more mercy than we can ever imagine. And God pours that mercy out in abundance on anyone who turns to him. We're dead in our sins, but God is rich in mercy. So let's begin reading Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> I'm going to read through the first five verses. I'll give you the homework a little bit later on. You can go home today and you can read this whole section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But we're going to deal with the first five verses. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Yes. The end of chapter 1, we have that thanksgiving and prayer section. Paul thanks the Ephesians for their faith in their Lord Jesus Christ, for the love that they show to all the saints. Then he prays that their lives would be filled with all this abundant greatness of the God that they worship and they serve. So he thanks them and he prays for them. And then he jumps immediately into this, into this topic and Paul pulls no punches from the very beginning. You were dead in your trespasses. Dead in your sins. This is stark and powerful imagery that Paul uses to describe what sin is, what it does to me before Jesus Christ. Our sin is like spiritual death. This is language we need to grow accustomed to. If we're going to follow Jesus Christ, read and understand Scripture in the New Testament that <clears throat> excuse me, sin is like spiritual death. We are the walking dead. If I were a different kind of pastor, that would have been the title of this sermon. And those would have been the slides up behind me. And a handful of you would have gotten grumpy with me by the end of service, right? But we are the walking spiritual dead. And the point of that imagery is that dead people have no power to bring themselves back to life. A corpse has no power, has no life in it. So he uses that imagery to say you and I, without Christ, are spiritual corpses. We do not have the power within us to make ourselves alive again. And Paul will make it clear. We read it in this passage. We'll read it again as we move through Ephesians. Paul will make it clear that all of us are dead in our sins. 
Not certain people who do certain kinds of things or persist in certain kind of rotten behaviors. They're the ones who are dead in our sins. The rest of us are just mostly dead, and we might actually be able to come back to life on our own. It's not the case. All of us, all of us are dead in our sins. No exceptions. Paul actually says that we all once lived this way. We all once lived dead to sin. Another passage where Paul talks about the same idea, but he uses a different kind of image and concept comes from Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 very simply says this, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not even you. Okay? Just in case you missed that first phrase, that includes Phil. It includes you, that includes me. None is righteous. No, not one. So this truth of what sin is like inside of the human heart, the power that it has, this truth makes absolutely no exceptions of anyone who might be a pretty good person otherwise on their own. We'd look at them, we'd say, well, they're not all that bad. It doesn't make an exception for that person. It doesn't make a special category or a special um, sort of uh, situation for anyone who we think might be a particularly rotten person. Well, we know that they're dead in their sins. It doesn't do that. He says, we all once walked this way before Jesus Christ. So now listen, this coin has two sides. All of us are dead in our sins. This is just what sin does to every single one of us. As the passage moves on, we're going to flip that coin and we're going to talk about the mercy of God. And there are no exceptions for the mercy of God either. There is no one who is so bad that they cannot receive the mercy of God. There's no one who has gone so far, done that one thing over and over again, that means that they do not deserve the mercy of God. Everyone is extended the mercy of God. So we all belong in this category. Guys, sin isn't just something that we do. It is actually a state of our hearts. It's a state of our nature. It's a state of our natural inclinations. The way we normally want to do things. It's not just what we do. Sin is actually a state of our hearts. So we don't just act like sinners. Scripture says we are slaves to sin. We don't just act like sinners. We are slaves to sin. So Paul in Ephesians 2 talks about being dead in our sin and our trespasses. Again, we go to the book of Romans and we hear Paul talk about what sin and salvation is like and what the differences between these two things are. And we hear him say in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, might, might be destroyed on the cross, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So while we are dead in our trespasses, it means we do not have the power to bring ourselves back to life. Paul says we are slaves to our sin, which means we must, in our brokenness, obey sin. That's what it means to be a slave to something or someone, right? So we are slaves to sin as well. So we're dead. This is a stark image, right? We cannot muster up our own energy or, 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 or whatever it is that we need to make ourselves alive again. That kind of power has to come from the outside in. It can't come from the inside out. It has to come from the outside in. 
So Paul says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And then he begins to talk about the particular way of life that sin leads us into. It's a way of life. It's not just a way of thinking or something we do. It's a way of life. So he uses this language of the things that we do. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's New Testament language for this was your lifestyle. This is just what you did, what we did, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sometimes, guys, sin is obvious in our actions, in our words, in the consequences of our behavior in our lives and in other people's lives. Sometimes sin is obvious. We see it, we know it, we feel it. Oftentimes, sin is a lot more subtle than that. We feel like we can kind of control the facade and put on the right mask and and look and sound the right way, but very few people maybe see what's wrong with us. God always sees what's going on in our lives. It doesn't matter. There is a way of life that sin leads us into, and it's a way of life that always takes us away from God and not toward God. This is the way that you once walked, following the course of of this world. He's going to explain to us how this happens, how it works in our lives. We walked in sin following the course of this world, he says. So his first description is about the way just the world works, the day-to-day structures of the world and of our lives that lead us away from Jesus Christ. Our day-to-day lives, our day-to-day habits, the things we normally do from sunup to sundown, the way the world is structured just in its normal course of events, Paul says that is a way of sin that leads us away from Jesus Christ. Paul uses these words often in Ephesians and the rest of the New Testament. He talks about the way of the world, or he'll use the word flesh. These are words that speak of the sin nature. These are words that speak of a way of life that leads us away from God that is full of sin. So that's what we understand every time he talks about the way of the world or we follow the passions or desires of our flesh. That's what he is talking about. We live according to our own standards or maybe even in open rebellion against God. But this is a provocative and actually a very helpful way for you and I to actually begin to address the ways of sin inside of our own lives. Asking questions like, how do the day-to-day patterns of my life lead me away from Jesus Christ? Have I even thought in these kinds of terms? What would it look like if I began adjusting a few of the patterns of my day-to-day life to pay more attention to Christ instead of just not? What are the day-to-day patterns of distraction like inside of my life? How many times do I get to the end of a couple of hours or the end of the day and I realize how much time I have spent distracted by my phone or by media or by whatever the case is? Have those things actually taken my mind and my heart and my life away from Jesus Christ? What about the kind of media that I consume, the kind of worldview that it's building inside of the way that I think and the way that I talk and the way that I relate? The way the world thinks about marriage and family in relationships, friends, leads us away from God and not toward God? Am I consuming these things in such a way that I'm not thinking about them, but I just find myself walking that way? Just normal day-to-day patterns and habits. How can I begin to change these things? 
Guys, when behaviors and attitudes become the habits of my life, they slip from my conscious mind into my unconscious mind, and then I do them every single day without even thinking about them. Does that make sense? When behaviors and attitudes slip from me consciously thinking about them into my unconscious mind, they become habits. And now I just do them without even thinking about them. And our habits develop our character. Our habits affect our relationships. Our habits affect our relationship with God. So what does it mean for us to actually pay attention to those things, to stop certain behaviors and start others, to encourage the kinds of behaviors that lead us toward Jesus Christ? We follow, he says, the pattern of this world. It's designed to lead us away from God. And then he goes on to say this. It's not just the pattern of this world, but he says then we're also following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the children of disobedience. So it's not just the way the world is structured. It's actually the work of our enemy, Satan. Let me just say this, put this out there, okay? He really exists. There really is a spiritual entity whose entire existence is all about destroying the children of God. He really exists. So it's not just patterns of daily life, but our enemy who is at work in subtle and not so subtle ways to draw us away from Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Peter puts it fairly clearly, probably a verse that's familiar to some of us. Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. I need you thinking about this, he says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is what he does. So we deny the existence of the devil to our own peril. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he talks about this. Now, if you read The Screwtape Letters, you need to understand that that book is written from the point of view of a senior devil to a junior devil, teaching him how to tempt us away from Jesus Christ. So when you read that book, you've got to understand all the advice is exactly the opposite. (laughs) But it's a great book. And one of the pieces of advice that are in that book is this. If we can convince this human being that we don't exist and that's what pulls them away from God, we're fine with that. We can do that all day long. Our goal is not to make them believe in us as devils. Our goal is to separate them from the God who wants to save them. That's our job. And it's, it's right advice. So we ignore the actual existence of the devil and we, we refuse to actually resist him to our own peril. So the goal of our enemy is to destroy as many souls as possible. And he works toward that end in any way that he possibly can. So we follow the ways of this world, and then we follow the ways of the spirit of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, this is an interesting twist to this. Why would someone follow the way of an enemy who wants to destroy them if they follow that way? Why would we do that? Because this is what sin does. Sin convinces us that that's the way to do things when it turns out, in fact, to be the way of our enemy. Paul says this is the spirit that is now at work 
and the sons were in the children of disobedience. What Paul, the story that Paul is telling in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 is this sort of movement, this character development of this person saved from sin. And it's movement from disobedience to the injection of the mercy of God to obedience. This is the movement of our lives with Jesus Christ. Disobedience, the injection of the mercy of God, and now lives of obedience. One way of life, God's intervention, and a brand new way of life. Remember, God is taking sinners, and he's making them his children. Now, keep an eye on that thought. He's making them his children because we're going to learn exactly how he does that, why he does that. But Paul's actually got more to say about how you and I sin, so buckle up. We've got to keep talking about how sin works inside of our lives. It's now at work. The spirit of power there is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Here's the thought. Our desires drive our lives. Our desires drive our lives. Paul uses a couple of pieces of vocabulary for us here. The passions of our flesh. We follow, right, we carry out the desires of our body and of our mind. And we're doing all of this in sin. He says all of these are the things that create this way of life that separate us from God, that cause us to ignore the way of God or even openly rebel against God. That's, that's what all of this context is. But our desires drive our lives. What is it that I want in life? What do I really want? You know, there's a way of answering that question, and I'm going to propose to you that uh, the way of answering that question, what do I want, is maybe a little bit different than you would typically think. What do I want? How do I answer that question? You take a look at what you actually do. What you actually do is your life's expression of what you really want. What you do is your life's expression of what you really want. So someone may say, I want to follow Christ. That's great. What are you doing about it? Is it something that you only pay attention to on a couple of hours on Sunday morning, but for six and a half days, you literally do nothing about your relationship with Jesus Christ? And you say, I want to follow Jesus Christ? Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's a surface-level want, but it hasn't hit the place in our lives where it turns into what we actually do. We think maybe in even more concrete terms, I want to be a great violinist. Great! What are you doing about it? Well, I think about it a lot. I say it a lot. I hang out with other wonderful musicians. I even watch some YouTube videos on how to become a great violinist. Well, have you picked up a violin? Well, not yet. Do they want to become a great violinist, or is that just a fleeting thought, a fleeting idea? What we do is going to expose to us the deepest desires and wants and passions that are inside of our lives. And when Paul starts talking about our passions, our desires, 
and our wants. He says some fascinating things. Now listen to the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What's going on in here? Keep it. Watch it. Give it to Christ as much as you possibly can because what's going on inside of here is going to be flowing out into the rest of your life. So when Paul talks about this, he throws in some fascinating ideas. He says, our desires sit in our bodies and in our minds. We, we carry out the desires of our body and our mind, he says. He says something very much like this in another place. Again, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1. Listen to how he puts this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, this is fascinating, which is your spiritual worship. The word that he uses there for spiritual can also, also be translated reasonable. So presenting your body to God as a living sacrifice is the most reasonable thing that I can do with my physical body is to give it to God. Because the desires of my sin nature sit inside of my physical body, work their way out in how I use my hands, what I watch with my eyes, where I go with my feet, what I say with my tongue, what I listen to with my ears. It sits inside of our physical bodies. So Paul says these things have to be given to God so that all of this can start to change. Some of you might have noticed I play the drums every now and then on Sunday morning, right? For years, I taught drum lessons. I don't anymore because I can't put up with drum students anymore. That's it's just being completely honest with you people. No. But here's, here's what happens. You bring in a brand new drum student, and they say something like, I really want to play the drums. And what they have in their heads is the drummers that they watch in their favorite bands, and they're watching these great big rock concert shows or jazz concert shows, and they think, oh, that's what I want to play. And then I sit them down in front of a stand and a little book and a tiny little drum pad, and I give them two sticks, and they go, that's not what I wanted to play. <laughs> and we have to start building habits. We have to start building right, left, right, left. We have to start building sticking. We have to start building what we call rudiments. It's like scales for a drummer. And as soon as we start learning all of those sorts of basics, then we can sit down. We've learned how to use our right hand and then our left hand. And then we sit down and we learn how to use our right foot and then our left foot. And what I tell drumming students, this is like coordinated independence. You can't just sit down and do this. You have to build certain habits into you so that when you sit down, you can turn those rudiments into music. You can turn those rudiments into actual creativity. But if bad habits creep in early, when you sit down to play an entire set or you sit down to play with other musicians, you're going to hit a ceiling and you're not going to go any further because you've got all these bad habits built into you physically. The way I use my right hand, the way I use my left hand, the way I use my right foot and left foot, if that's not ready to go, I'm not ready to go. So the most reasonable thing for a drum student to do is to sit down at that practice pad and to build habits with their physical body. And so it is with our spiritual lives. There are habits that we build into our physical bodies that point us in the direction of life with God. Paul says it's the most reasonable thing that you can do. 
That's Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse number one, presents your body to God. Verse number two, may your mind be transformed when it is given to God. Ephesians chapter two, in our sin, we carry out the desires of our body and of our mind. And he says, but that can change. That can be different now in Jesus Christ. Guys, our minds are like storage warehouses. Everything we see, everything we hear, everything we expose ourselves to gets stuck inside of that storage warehouse. Doesn't ever really go. So when it's time for something to come out of me, what is in me is what starts coming out of me. The way Jesus puts it, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So how do I now begin to change what's going on up here? The way I think, what I think is true, what I think about Jesus Christ, what I think about sin and grace and mercy. I have to actually begin presenting my mind to Christ so that I can begin thinking differently as well. This is important because this is what, what we call spiritual disciplines. This is what they do. This is why we engage in spiritual disciplines. We may even call them faith skills, skills of our lives that actually develop and build our faith. Spiritual disciplines are habits of body and mind that point us toward Jesus Christ. They take our natural way of the flesh, our natural way of sin, and they begin working on training them back in the direction of God. This is why we engage in spiritual disciplines. What am I talking about? Last week, we actually talked about one of them, and it was the discipline of thanksgiving, right? And when we engage in the discipline of thanksgiving, we're deliberate about it. We're purposeful about it. It begins to tune our souls to what God is doing. The discipline of thanksgiving is a discipline of the mind, and it's a discipline of the tongue. Instead of bitterness and misery and anger and frustration, right, there's a cloud in every sky, it's not that the uh, cup is half full or half empty. It's half full of poison, right? We take that and we turn it to thanksgiving. We begin retraining our minds in the ways of God. We begin retraining the things that we say in the ways of God instead of all of that. Thanksgiving is this kind of discipline, a discipline of silence, which is a big deal inside of the Christian faith, is also a discipline that tames a physical member of our body, our tongue. The book of Proverbs is going to tell you over and over again that one of the ways that you can tell a fool is a fool never knows when to shut up. The way you learn wisdom is you learn when to just not say anything. Have I learned how to do this? It, it's a physical discipline. It's a mental discipline. The discipline of fasting, it tames our appetites. It teaches us that God is our provider. The discipline of, of getting everybody together and showing up to church to be with the family of God, this is a physical discipline that then puts us in the presence of God when we worship together and pray together, read the Word of God together. You see how this works. It's all part of our physicality. It's all part of the way that we think and what we're learning. So instead of following Following the ways of our sinful body and mind, now we're learning how to follow the ways that God gives us, both with spirit and with mind. This is why 
These faith skills, these disciplines are so important to Christians. They point us in the direction of the work of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual disciplines are not magic. They're not magic. They don't just make things happen. That's not what they do. When we engage in them, they give God more and more access to my mind and to my body so that he can do what only he can do inside of this life. That's why we do these things. So that he can more have more access to this. So that somehow, by his grace and mercy, this life may look more and more like Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul said we were dead in our sins. And the power that transforms us has to come from the outside in. We don't muster it up ourselves. It has to be the work of God. So Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, it is by grace you have been saved. This is a shocking set of descriptions about the character and the nature of God. And as we kind of ruminate through these first five verses of chapter 2, hopefully we're getting a feel for exactly how shocking these things really are that we just read. We could spend all day talking about how sinful the human race is. We could spend all day talking about how sinful our spouse is, right? We could spend all day talking about how sinful I am or we are, and we really could do that. And we would do that, and we would gather the impression that we should just be left to our own devices. That's how sinful we are. In fact, Paul uses this incredible phrase in his description. He says, we were children of wrath. That's a powerful thought, but what that means is this. God is entirely within his rights to judge every sinner. Paul says, we are children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, What he has decided to do is to make you alive in Christ. That's what God has decided to do. But God, what a powerful pair of words. God extends himself to us. He reaches out to us, and he makes us alive together with his son, Jesus Christ. Why? Why does he do this? Why would he make a decision like this? Why would God make an exchange like this? All I bring to him is sin and brokenness and inability. That's all I bring to him. What he brings to me is life and life abundantly. Why would he make that exchange? Because of his great love. This is agape love. The love that God shows. 
It is proactive. We're dead in our sins. We're slave to our sins. We're not by nature reaching up to God in our own ability. He is reaching to us. This love is proactive. This is a proactive love. It is an extending love. It is a sacrificial love. This only works because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as our soon and coming king. That's the only reason this works is because it is a sacrificial love. It is also an unrequited love. God extends that love to whosoever will. And some pick it up and some don't. And yet God continues to offer his love. It is an everlasting love. It is steadfast. It is enduring. It is everlasting You see, guys, the solution to my sin and my death is not that I have to learn how to deserve this love, but to receive what God is giving in the first place. The solution to all of this is God's love and mercy. The solution to my need is what God shows in His love and mercy. So God is... Rich in mercy, and he is great in love. I want to think about this phrase this morning as we sort of begin things, bring things to an end here. God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. Mercy is this multifaceted and powerful word and idea in Scripture. It shows up in ways that we don't expect unless we sit down and actually start doing some of the digging. There are some theologians out there who say that um, between love and mercy, maybe even the word mercy, the concept mercy, this one concept comes as close as any concept to defining the very character and nature of God. He is a God of mercy, and that's absolutely astounding. And he doesn't just have a little bit of mercy. God is rich in mercy. It's not that God's mercy sort of runs thin every couple of centuries. We have to wait for the interest to accrue, and then God can give us a little bit more mercy. It's not like that. God is rich and abundant in mercy, and he's constantly giving mercy. What is mercy? We ask that question, and I know that there's kind of a straightforward, almost Sunday school answer to that, and we'll say things like this. Well, grace is a gift that God gives that we do not deserve, Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. I don't deserve the love of God, but he gives it. I do deserve the judgment of God. Paul called me a child of wrath, and he's right. I do deserve that, but God doesn't give me that. God gives me something else instead. Now, that's true insofar as it goes, but that's not the best way to understand biblical mercy. Now, the reason maybe we don't see this word or this concept as often as we think we do inside of Scripture is the way our English translations work. There are a few words in Scripture that speak of mercy, one particular inside of the Old Testament that's actually translated in a couple of of dozen different ways throughout the Old Testament to speak of mercy. It's often used as the word mercy, but here's what happens, and and this, this will hopefully help us see this a little bit more when you hear these phrases. This particular word for mercy in your Bibles is most commonly translated with one of these two phrases, loving kindness or steadfast love. Does that sound like something that God doesn't do to you? His loving kindness, 
and his steadfast love. It doesn't matter what you do. The mercy of God is steadfast. You need the mercy of God today. Well, guess what? It's here. It is steadfast. It is loving kindness. The New Testament actually likes to use that word for the concept of mercy. It is His kindness, the kindness that God shows toward us. So guys, what if mercy is the kindness of God shown toward us instead of just avoiding the judgment that we deserve? It is something that God extends toward us. One of the pivotal early moments in the Old Testament that speaks to the mercy of God happens in the book of Exodus. It's Exodus chapter 34. Now I'll let you read Exodus 32, 33, and 34 to make sense of the context. But God is rewriting the Ten Commandments because Moses got mad at Aaron and he, he threw the Ten Commandments down and they broke. And God wants to get rid of Israel and Moses says, you can't do that. And God says, well, come on back up. We'll rewrite the Ten Commandments. And as God is speaking to Moses in Exodus 34, at this pivotal moment in sin and mercy, God says this. And the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the God you're following, Moses. This is the God that we are learning about. This is the God I am revealing to you, a God who is slow to anger, but who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Psalms are full of prayers that call upon the mercy of God. We read part of this this morning during worship from Psalm chapter 25. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. God, my sins are always before me. I know them. Whether I have successfully hidden them from other people or not, I know them. But here's a relationship I need with you. I need a relationship that is full of steadfast love and mercy. And this will be for your goodness. The Psalms are full of that prayer. So what if this mercy is not just a kind of one-time injection that we receive into our souls at the moment of salvation, but is the kindness of God that is shown to us over and over and over. It is the kind of thing that we can live in and partake in all the time. What if the mercy of God was like that? The middle of the book of Lamentations. Some of you have heard this verse of Scripture before, but you may not know where it sits in Scripture. The book of Lamentations is written by a prophet who stands in the rubble of the city of Jerusalem the prophet Jeremiah has warned the people of God, stop rebelling, stop rebelling. If you turn back to God, it's going to be okay. And the people of God said, no, we're going to keep on rebelling. So here come the Babylonians, and they destroy the nation of Judah, and they tear the city of Jerusalem down to its bare bones. And the people are led, hook and nose, one to another, through the desert as slaves in Egypt. And Jeremiah stands there on the smoldering rubble of the city of Jerusalem. That's the book of Lamentations. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? In the middle of the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah knows this 
about God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The author Michael Card puts it like this. It is not fear that drives us to him, but rather his unexpected and extraordinary kindness that provides a pathway by which we are drawn to him. God extends his mercy to every one of us this morning, wherever we are in this walk with Christ even if we are still dead in our trespasses and sin, the mercy of God is extended to you this morning. Whatever darkness or pain or complication or difficulty we walk into this place with today, the mercies of God are new absolutely every morning. They never, they will never come to an end. Great is His faithfulness. Let's pray.